and to study it in the original languages and all the insights and the benefits that there are to uh, see in the, the Greek New Testament specifically uh, uh, regarding tonight's teaching. We ask you blessing be on your word and that you help me to teach, help learners to learn and, and uh, pray that you make it easy for them to learn the alphabet and to, and to pick up whatever you want them to pick up from these things. So we ask that you'd have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll review the alphabet. We'll review the diphthongs. Then we'll talk tonight about the Greek article. Uh, Greek does not have an indefinite article like a and an, like English does. Um, it only has the article, so it's a, like the definite article. But to say that it equals the the is not fair because <laughs> it is so much more than that. So we'll talk about the article. We'll talk about adjectives. Uh, we'll do some reading from John 1. Well, of course, we'll have insights. Insights will have something to do with uh, mostly with the article. And time for questions at the end. So starting here, we've got Alpha. We need some coordination here. Let's just start again. I'll say it with you so we can kind of keep on track with each other. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, c, omicron, p, rho, sigma, tau, upsilon, phi, Chi, Psi, Omega. And let's pretend we're doing Hebrew. We'll start at this side and work our way across this time. We'll just, just mix it up so it's in a different order, different sequence. Rho, Sigma, P, Epsilon, Lambda, Mu, Mu, Delta, Xi, Omicron, Iota, Gamma, Eta, Kappa, Alpha, Upsilon, Psi, Nu, Phi, Omega, Chi, Theta, Beta, Zeta. Okay. And the Alpha, Iota together sounds like I is in Isle. Epsilon, Iota, sounds like A, as in eight or weight. Omicron, Iota, sounds like Oi, as in, whoops, <laughs> too early, foil or oil, okay. Upsilon, Iota, We, as in sweet. Alpha, Upsilon, Owls and sauerkraut, okay. Epsilon, upsilon. U, as in feud. Oops, too far. <laughs> All right, this one, omicron, upsilon. U, as in through. Yeah, that was sneak peek. All right. So, as we said, the English has a definite article, the, if I just say a table, it could be any table, but I say the table, it's obvious that I've got some 
one in particular in mind. You'd have to look at the context, find out what table we're talking about. But if I say the table, it's like you're pointing a finger at it. That's why we call it the direct object. And we have an indefinite object, uh, article rather, indefinite article, um, alpha, I mean, A and an, depending upon whether the next word starts with a vowel or not. Greek does not have an indefinite article, therefore it is not necessary to refer to the article as the definite article, we just refer to it as the article, because it's the only one that it has, although it comes in various forms. And we'll look at all those forms in a little bit. The Greek article is an ingenious tool in the Greek language for clarity, uh, and it is the friend of anyone reading Koine Greek, no matter what declension the noun is in. So declension is a family of endings. And so if you have a feminine noun, that's going to end with probably alpha or eta, and it's going to have a family of endings that go with that. We've only look at, looked so far at the second, and I really don't plan on looking at any others because that's not really the point of this class. But the second declension masculine endings, that's another set of endings. Uh, and then there are third declension endings for when the stem ends with a consonant. Um, but no matter what the word is and which declension it belongs to, the definite article will always tell you the case gender number, even if it's a whether it's a third declension feminine or whether it's a first declension feminine, doesn't matter. The article is going to look exactly the same for that use. Okay, we'll see that. So that's why it's it's easy to memorize because you just have well, and there's no there's no article for the vocative case, so you only have to remember articles for. Well, you don't have to. This, this is if you're going to go on and learn Greek, it would be good to learn these. So we'll just have the nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative cases, and then you'll have masculine, feminine, and neuter forms for those, and that's it. That's all of them, singular and plural. That then that's it. So the article will do some of the work for you. Sometimes you look at a word and you go, I don't. I'm not sure what to do with that word, but if it's got the article in front of it, which they do use the article a whole lot, uh, you can look at the article and say, oh, okay, well, this is going to be a, a um, genitive feminine singular. And you can tell that because the article is going to match the other one, but the other one might be, the, the noun might be in a different case. Uh, not a different case, but a different uh, declension. So it's ingenious. I mean, the way they use it is... Uh, it was just it's just a good idea in the language. It was just something that uh, it's too bad that it got lost in other languages because it's very, very useful in pinpointing things. Very, uh, very common, very good tool. So and it's your friend. You can always look at the article and get more information more quickly. So, yeah, no matter what article, which declension the noun is in, the article will consistently reveal the case gender number of the noun or and adjective that it modifies. Uh, the uses of the Greek article are many and very different from the English definite article and indefinite article. I said it was used a whole lot, more than 20,000 times in the New Testament. They use articles where we don't, don't expect it. Uh, when you say Jesus, it may be ha Jesus. <laughs> might have the article in front of his name. We don't normally do that. In, when we're translating, we wouldn't include it, but... It's um, that's the way they do it. It's used a lot, 20, over 20 or nearly 20,000 times. Uh, grammarians are still trying to determine all of the nuances provided by the article. Um, so while we don't, we have a lot. There are there is much. You can take a uh, syntactical 
grammar and talk about the article and spend pages and pages and pages and pages talking about how we do know that it's used, but there may be some nuances we're not yet familiar with. So people continue to study it, study the ancient manuscripts, uh, not just biblical manuscripts, but others from that time to see how people use it and see if there's other nuances available. But uh, even though they're still looking and see if they can find some more, we have a whole lot of them that we can learn about. Uh, Much has been discovered on the use of the article. And one of the ingenious things about the article is you can take almost any part of speech. You can take a prepositional phrase, stick an article in front of it, and it'll act like a noun. It's just (laughs) very ingenious, very, very flexible. And when you have something that's that flexible, then you have lots of room for precision and nuances. Okay? Here's an important rule. It's called the law, law of concord or law of agreement, and it's that the article, and it isn't just the article. You're going to find the same thing true for adjectives. You're going to find the same thing true for pronouns in some, in some instances. Uh, the article must agree with the noun or adjective or and adjective if there, if there is one in gender, number, and case. I should flip that around, case, gender, number. That's why I have it in most all the places. I'll have to change that. There is no vocative case for the article. And we're going to look at the following tables, identify all of the forms of the article. The oddball ones are the nominative, singular, well, and plural also. Uh, all the rest of them, they all start with tau. And if you uh, look back at your notes, like on page 14, and you see the endings to the second declension noun, for instance, and you'll find this ending here where omicron, upsilon, the omega with the yoda subscript, the omicron nu. And so you can say, oh, these are following the same declension forms. And if you were to uh, look at the, if we looked at the, went so far as look at the first declension nouns, we'd find these same ones here, taste, tay, tain, and uh, neuter. Um, the anomaly with neuter is that nominative and accusative look exactly alike. That's true in both singular and plural. So let's just uh, go through and pronounce these. Ha, hey, ta, tu, taste, tu, to, te, to, ton, tain, ta. My wife and I just took a trip to Springfield to uh, <laughs> Springfield because we were in Sioux Falls. <laughs> we took a trip to Sioux Falls. We just got back Saturday night. And uh, she was reading or, or taking a nap or something. And so what am I doing while I'm driving? I'm, I'm reciting these things uh, and others. I mean, there's, I've got things in Hebrew that I recite. It's just to, just to make sure I've always got it, you know, easily accessible in my memory. So these are things that I memorize. If you're not going to go on and learn Greek, you don't have to memorize these things. But if you're thinking about you want to learn Greek, this might be handy to go ahead and get get under your belt. Um, so that's this, That's all the singular. There are no other singular forms. Um, and we have masculine, and they, these are all singular. We have masculine, feminine, neuter. And uh, you note that the genitive has the same and the dative has the same between masculine and neuter. That's another, another issue. So... Um, that, that, that's a good thing to memorize if you're going to go on into Greek. If you take Greek, you will have to memorize those. <laughs> so again, the nominative for the plurals uh, are also the oddball, or at least um, the, the masculine and feminine one 
are. Um, and all the rest of them start with Tau. And so you see that there's just a pattern. And if you look at the masculine endings and you look at the plural endings under uh, like Kurios or something on page 14, I think it is, you'll see these exact same endings here. On, ois, us. So let's start. Hoi, hi, ta. When I'm driving down the road, I'll say ta. I, that's not how you say it. It's pronounced ta, but I don't want to confuse it with the other one because it's also, it's got an Omicron that's still pronounced ta. So I'll, when, I'm, when I'm reciting, I say ta, but it's, it's not ta, it's ta. But um, tone, tone, tone. That's easy. If you see tone, you know, you may not be able to tell whether it's masculine, feminine, or neuter, but you know it's a, plum, a plural genitive. Okay? Tois, tice, tois. Tus, tas, ta. Okay, and that is all of the articles. Uh, no matter what they're used with, what noun, what adjective, anything else, you've seen them all. That's it. That's why they're so handy. It's because they're so pervasive, nearly 20,000 times in the New Testament, and they're pretty regular. Uh, you don't see um, any other odd forms coming in, depending upon declension or something. Adjectives. An adjective is a word that modifies, and we're going to look more at articles when we get to the insights. Some of the things that, where we can see that the article is important. We already looked a couple of weeks ago at John 1, 1, and saw the article used there, and the different um, nuances that that would have, whether the article is there or not. And so uh, to, today we'll look at other examples. No, so moving on to adjectives. An adjective is a word that modifies a noun, pronoun, or another adjective. For example, the bright red Bible belongs to him. We got red that modifies Bible. That's an adjective modifying a noun, but we have bright. Bright is an adjective modifying an adjective. It's modifying red. Bright red Bible. Uh, adjectives can modify a noun in the attributive sense. What attributive means it's an attribute. Um, the, tall, the, uh, the tall man. That's that. What is the attribute of the man? He's the tall one, as opposed to some other one that you might be talking about. So adjectives can be uh, attributive, modifying a noun. It can assert something about the noun predicate. For instance, you could say the man is tall. Now you're asserting something about him. You're not saying this is his his uh, attribute. You're saying that he is tall. It's a statement uh, about uh, an assertion about the noun. So that's the predicate. We do this in English. We do these in Greek, too. It's exactly the same. Or it can stand in the place of a noun, and that's called substantive. Okay, we have that. The attributive, the, attributive, the, the tall man, the man is tall, predicate. Substantive, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's not an advertisement for a movie. But uh, those are all adjectives, good, bad, and ugly are all adjectives. But they, when you put the article with them, they become used like nouns. Uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. The dead, that's an adjective, but it's used in, a, in the sense of a, um, as, as though it were a noun. Greek adjectives function much like the English usage. Greek adjectives agree with the nouns that they modify in case, gender, and number. The, the inflection on the adjective reveals the case, gender, and number. Therefore, 
Greek adjectives must have masculine, feminine, and neuter forms. Let's unpack that one a little bit. So you have a noun. It's always going to belong to a certain declension, and it's always going to have that family of endings. Uh, and if it's masculine, like if we're talking about second declension, masculine nouns, they're always going to follow the same pattern. You won't see it feminine. It just you won't, it won't cross over. However, if you have an adjective, like we talked about the the tall man. Well, what if it's a tall woman? Well, it has to match in case, gender, number. So that means tall has to have a masculine form and has to have a feminine form. Or you said um, the wall is tall. <laughs> it has to be a neuter form also. So adjectives uh, can cross over. The words themselves cross over between masculine and feminine and neuter. But they will always match. But that's one of the things that's different about um, Greek adjectives. When looking up an adjective in a lexicon, that is a Greek dictionary. The masculine and feminine neuter forms will look like this. Agathos. That's good. I mean, that's what it means. <laughs> good. <laughs> good. So uh, then we have this A and we have this on. This is the feminine ending. This is the neuter ending. Paneros. That's evil. And that's the masculine ending. That's the feminine ending, and that's the neuter ending. So when you have an adjective, it'll, the dictionary will give it to you in masculine, feminine, neuter forms. We're going to come back and look this over just a little bit more, but before we do, I just want to go back and kind of review. Here's what you've had on page 14. When you see kurios, it doesn't matter whether it's the first word, last word, middle word. It doesn't matter where it is in a sentence. When you see it's kurios, that's nominative. That's going to be probably the subject of, most likely the subject of the sentence. And so when we say the Lord is great, it's not going to look like this. It's not going to look like this. If we're saying if the Lord is the subject and the Lord is great, and he is, it's going to look like this, kurios. Genitive shows ownership most of the time and using using a broad brush. Kuryu. Well, you're not going to say the law of kurios is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's going to be kuryu. Um, so it would look like this to be used like this, genitive. Kurio. We lift our voices to the Lord. It's not going to be kurios. It's not going to be kuryu. It's going to be kurio because it's the indirect object. Uh, we is the subject. Lift is the verb. Our would be possessive, but then uh, voices, that's the direct object, and this is the indirect object. We lift our voices to the Lord. So if you come across a statement like that in Greek, it would be in the dative like that. I love the Lord. You don't say, I love kurios, because... That that doesn't work. It's it's not the it's not the subject. It's the direct object. I love the Lord. So these are the endings. You got the sigma, upsilon, o with a um, omega with a iota subscript and a nu. Now, keeping that in mind, going back to looking at ag adjectives, and we looked at uh, agathos, agathos, masculine. That's that's masculine. But in the let's jump back to again. This said agathos, a, and on. So let's go back to again. Agathos, agathe, agathon. And so then when you see that in the dictionary, you know, okay, this is an adjective because it's got 
masculine, feminine, neuter forms. And you see the same declension thing going on here. This also looks like, if you look at the definite articles, you know, that we had the list of uh, definite article endings that, that over here on the um, feminine, it would be taste, te, tain, you know, it's the same set of endings. That's why when you learn these endings, it makes uh, the diagnostic approach to Greek a lot easier because you can count on these things being, most of the time you can count on being uh, uh, similar. I say most of the time because when you get two vowels, you stick an ending onto something, you get vowels together, they can contract and things can change. But most of the time, since we're painting with a broad brush, you know, it's pretty consistent following these. And then this follows the, the feminine endings. This follows the uh, neuter endings. And we noticed before that the genitive and dative between masculine and neuter are the same, and we find the same thing here. So this would actually be agathos would be good man. Man is insinuated because it's masculine form. Agathe would be, if this was a substantival adjective, it's an adjective that's being used in the place of a noun, then you could insert the word man. You could insert the word woman when you say agathe. Uh, hey, agathe, the good woman, because it's, it's insinuated because it's feminine, or the good thing, agathon. So it follows the same uh, declension endings. And we have the plural here, same way. Uh, again, we've looked at these in the past. If you look at the, compare this to the nouns, you'll see the same endings. Um, and this also uh, follows feminine and neuter plural endings. The adjective stands in three positions. We talked about this a little bit ago. The Greek is the same way. We talked about it in English, but the attributive position the adjective has a definite article. Uh, that's the good man. We'll look at some examples in the next slide. Predicate, there's no definite article with the adjective. That asserts something about the noun. The man is good. And substantive, uh, the adjective, there's, there's no noun for the adjective to modify. The adjective is standing alone. And so it functions as a noun. So the good or the dead. <clears throat> so you can see ha agathos, ha anthropos. We ought to just do that. Ha agathos, ha anthropos. You could turn those around and say ha anthropos, ha agathos, and it would be saying the same thing. Uh, but yeah, the good, the good, the man. That's if you want to say the good man, that's how you do it in Greek. The good, the man. All right. But if you take the article, drop that article off the front, and it's just agathos ha anthropos, it's saying the man is good. Right, right. You have to in English we have to supply a to be verb, but in Greek they don't have to have it. If you see that, it's it's saying it's making a statement about the man that he is good. And we talked about this a little bit, substantive, ha, agathos, this is masculine, so the good man. A little bit trickier here, hi, agathai, this is plural, both, this is the plural article, this is the plural ending, so, and it's both feminine, so this would be the good women, feminine plural. Ta, agathon, this is back to singular again, the good thing, neuter, neuter singular. Okay, so we're ready to read.
How do you feel about this? Do you feel like you're ready to read it with me, or do you want me to read it and you repeat it after me? Do you want to give it a shot? We've looked at it for a couple of weeks. This might be a little early. You want to read it? Okay. Here it is, because you asked for it. <laughs> All right. Let's say it together. N R K Ain Ha Lagos. Kai Ha Lagos. Ain Pros Tan Theon Kai Theos Ain Ha Lagos Hutas Ain N Arche Pros Tan Theon Panta De Autu Eginata Kai Choris Autu Eginata Ude Hen Ha Gegenen. Notice the difference here. This has got both a rough breathing mark and an accent mark, whereas up here in verse 1, this has a rough breathing mark, but there's no accent mark. And that is something that differentiates an article from a pronoun, okay, a relative pronoun. And I think we've already been through this, but we can do it in in the beginning. Um, what are those? Monotic, monotic. There are monotic words. Um, you can say in the beginning. A monotic word is something of which there is only one, and so it's not necessary to say the. For you, you don't have to say. Uh, they could just refer to the sun, but we only have one sun, at least in this solar system. <laughs> and so you, just, you don't have to say the sun. You can just say sun because there's or moon. We only have one moon. And so you, they're, they're just any word that represents something of which there is only one is called monotic. As in like mono, okay? That's easy to remember, mono. And um, so the beginning is, is one of those. So it's, you can, in such, even though the, the article is not here, you can still insert it in beginning. Well, it's in the beginning. There's only one beginning. Everything started at some point except for God. He's eternal. Was, we talked about this being a... This is the to-be verb that means continual existence in the past or continual action in the past. In the beginning was the word and the word. So we could say in good English, the word was in the beginning. And the word was with the God, but we don't usually say the God, so just God. But we can see this has got the new and this has got a new. And so this is accusative. So this is the nominative Halagos is the subject. He was with God. And we spent a lot of time on this. This is the Halagos is still the subject. And the word was God. Okay, And there's different ways it can be said. This indicates the Trinity, that the word was not all there was to God. There's more to God than just the Lagos. Hutas, we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about demonstrative pronouns demonstrative you're, you're pointing something out there's near demonstratives and far demonstratives and this one say this is a near demonstrative this one meaning the word it's still uh, nominative like logos is talking about the same one this one was in the beginning with god we saw that use of pros over here how can he be god and be the one 
How can he be the one that he's with? Well, it's because there's more to God than just the word. All through, and the, the apostrophe is there, meaning there's a missing letter. It's actually an alpha that would go there normally. But since the next word starts with an alpha, or actually a diphthong, ow, uh, it drops that one. So, And that usually only happens, or happens mostly with prepositions. Uh, all things, this is neuter, so it's all things through him came into being. And without him came into being not one, or I'm sorry, and not one which became. All right. Is there anything else I wanted to talk about on that? Okay, we'll start reading again. N, auto. You don't pronounce the uh, iota subscript, but you do see, uh, so it's auto. It's got the emphasis on the last syllable. Zoe, ain, kai, hey, zoe, ain, ta, phos. Tone, anthropon. Uh, in him, life was. But we'd say, we could just say, life was in him. But this is fronted, it's towards the beginning of the sentence. It's emphasized, in him. We already had the word and then this one, and now we're in him. We're still pointing directly to him, the Logos. In him was life. Again, this is continual or repeated action in the past. And the life was the light of men. This is plural of men. Kai, ta, phos, en, te, skatia, fine, kai, he, skatia, auta, u, katalaben, and the light in the darkness shines. It shines. And the darkness, it not could overcome or put down or hold down or something like that. Agenita, anthropos, apostolmenos, para, theu, anima, auto, ioanes. Okay? Instead of being was, continual action in the past, There's this would be translated... Uh, there was a man sent from God, but this was is not the same as that was. This is continual action of the past, and this is saying he became. A man became. But you could say and a man was being sent from God. Notice the ooh, that's a little bit different than what we've seen. We've seen a lot of theons, we've seen theos, but here's the ooh. Um, he was sent of God, a name to him, John. But that's that's... A, an idiom, a name to him, John. His name was John, okay? Hutas, Elthen, Ace, Marturion, Hina, Marturese, Peri, Tu, Photas, Hina, Pantes, Pistus, you know, Pistusosen, D, 
How to? Okay. This one came for a witness in order that he could he would testify concerning the light in order that all might believe through him. Uk ein ekenos. That's another one of those demonstratives. That's a, a far demonstrative. That one. Not this one. That one. <laughs> Ta, fos, al. Notice the apostrophe. There should be another alpha there. Allah. But since the next word starts with a vowel, it drops the alpha here. So it's just all. Hina, marturese, peri, tu, fotas. Not he was that light, but in order that he might bear witness concerning the light. Ain, ta, oh, that's a capital, Ada, by the way. It's, it's good to have the capitals. It's, after, it's a new sentence, and that's why, why it has a capital letter there. Ain, ta, phos, ta, alethinon, ha, notice that's got an accent, though, so that's the relative pronoun, fotidze, panta, Anthropon, Urchamanon, Hase, Ton, Cosmon. Um, the light was the uh, true, or this was the true light, yeah. The, was the true light, yeah. The light, this was the true light, the one shining or giving light to all men was coming into the world. Cosmon and cosmos. Uh, if this had been nominative, it would say cosmos. So that's where we get that word. Had, okay, we'll, so the, we'll stop with that for now. See, was there anything else in there? Watch for, you know, breathing marks. Uh, rough and smooth, capital letters, different accent marks where you emphasize it. I think that's probably about it. All right, insights, adjectives and articles. This first one is actually about adjectives. Uh, most of them are about articles, but the first insight is regarding adjectives. Matthew 6.13, this is from the Lord's Prayer. And the old King James Version says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is... Not a good translation because evil, paneru, right here, paneru, has the article. And there's no other noun for this adjective to modify. So this is a substantive. It's treated as a noun. The New King James has corrected this and done a better job. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, this is taking the substantive um, adjective and and making it relate to a person. Uh, delivers from the evil one. That that one is more appropriate. The NIV also says delivers from the evil one. Uh, the New American, I was disappointed that they still said evil, and ESV that still says evil. However, both of them have footnotes saying it's the evil one. But that's just something to look for. But that is what the meaning of the, the sentence in the prayer is. But deliver us from the evil one. Okay, 
so that's all I'm going to do on adjectives, but on articles, there is a rule called the Granville-Sharp rule. Now, Granville-Sharp lived from 1735 to 1813. He was an English philanthropist and abolitionist. Abolitionist meaning he was against slavery. He was known as the Abraham Lincoln of England. So he campaigned and worked to end slavery in England. But not only did he do those things, he also studied Greek. <laughs> Oddly enough. And he wrote a number of books on Greek as well. Uh, and he came up with this rule and there are some who will say that Granville Sharp's rule is not solid or it's been called into question. And that is not a correct statement. Granville Sharp's rule works every single time. When it doesn't work, it's because you're not following his rules. In his rule, he has some rules. And as long as you follow his rules, it works every single time, about 80 times, and it works every single time. Okay? But we have to do, we have to follow his rules. Uh, so it hasn't been called into question, or rather, those who have called it into questions have tripped over their own feet by not following these rules. What are the rules? In Greek, when there's two nouns, and they are one, connected by chi, that's and, or sometimes it's both, or sometimes it's even, or also, or something, but most of the time it's and. I mean, it's, for this class, it's and. <laughs> so they're connected by and. And we saw and when we were reading in John. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Kai, Kai. We saw it a couple of times, and after that too. Um, so you have to have two nouns. They're connected by Kai. The article precedes only the first noun. So you got noun number one, and you have Kai, and you have noun number two. But noun number one has to have the article. All right? And then the nouns are personal and singular and not proper names. And this is the rule that probably gets overlooked by people who call it into question. And they'll say, well, it doesn't work here. Well, it's because that's a proper name. Okay, well, that's, that's not a part of the rule. The rule is based on not a proper name for either one of the nouns. Okay. When these things are true, when you have two nouns and they're connected by chi and the article precedes the first one and the nouns are personal, singular, and not proper names, then the nouns refer to the same person. This construction appears 80 times in the New Testament. So let's look at some examples. Did I skip one? Yeah, I did scroll by one. Oh, speaking of skipping one, last week there was one that we didn't cover. Uh, last week we were talking about nuances of case in time. And there's one section we did on accusative being the extent of time. And there should have been two in here for, and we, but we didn't, we didn't cover it. Um, and it's from Revelation chapter 20, when an angel comes down, grabs that serpent of old, who's Satan, Satan uh, the devil and Satan, and binds him with a chain and throws him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's an accusative of an extent of time. So it doesn't mean that just during this thousand years he's bound some of the time or something, or that he's bound to a certain point at some certain point during that time. It's for the entire extent of the time, for the entire thousand years he is bound. Okay, And then, if you go down, that's in verse 2, and I think it's in verse 6, Get a little farther, and it says that uh, the second, those who are in the second resurrection will be raised and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. That, again, is not just a point in time of a thousand years, not 
uh, off and on during the course of a thousand years. That's for the extent of the thousand years. Okay, so that's make up for last week. Missed that one. So that's why sometimes when I hit this, it goes farther than I want. So anyway, going, getting back to articles and getting back to the Granville Sharp rule. Uh, Mark 6.3, we have a question that starts with ook, and that's uh, that was the uh, second week's insights. If you have a question, negative question, and it uses ook, it's expecting a yes answer. Okay, remember we talked about expecting yes answers, expecting no answers. That's this is uh, this tells us right here. We um, this is a question. Uh, so if we can say something like is, we're going to come over and pick up is not this the carpenter. We get technology from that word, tectone. Uh, the son of Marius and Adolphos. You've heard of Philadelphia, the brotherly love, Adolphos is his brother, and brother of Iacobu. Um, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but James is not in Greek. There's no James in Greek. All of the Jameses, every one of them, are actually Jacobs. And so, um, so anyway, this is saying, is not, or, well, since they're expecting a yes answer, uh, this is the carpenter, isn't it? This is the son of Mary, isn't it? This is the uh, brother of Jacob or James, isn't it? Okay, so that's the way it's being expressed. Uh, but we see here's a, a noun, son, and we see the article in front of it. So we get there's two. It, we we have two nouns. We got son and we got brother, and the first one has to have the article. We have that. So that's two of the rules. And neither one of these are names. All three rules are fulfilled here. So the son of Mary, and the brother of James, or Jacob, are the same person. Okay, this all makes sense. And we don't have any trouble with this in English, but I'm building this up so we can understand what's going on. And then we'll look at some other things to prove a few things. All right. So, yes, expecting yes. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of Jacob or James? First Peter 1, 3. Here's Theos. That's a noun. Here's Kai. Oh, I don't think I meant pointed that out. Kai over here. Okay. Here we got Theos. It has the article, Hathaos, the God, and Pater. Uh, you've heard of word like, words like paternal, having to do with the father's side, right? Pater comes from Pater. So the God and Father. Okay, we got two nouns. Neither one of them are names. They're connected by Kai, and the first one has an article. So God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's God and Father are the same one. Okay, and we we can pick that up in English too. We know that and understand that. But in Greek, it's pretty solid. Um, and this is again just looking at examples, getting used to the idea, and then we'll look at some other things to prove some things. John chapter twenty, verse seventeen: the Father. We have an article. We have a noun of me. So this is my Father and the Father of you, your Father. So the Father of Jesus, my Father. And your father is the same person, okay? And God, 
Well, and okay. Notice that the first one is the only one that has. It doesn't matter even if you have four. One, two, three, four nouns. The first one has the article. None of the others do. But they're all connected by Kai. So the father of me, so Jesus' father. He says, and the father of you, our father, and God of me and God of you are all. We're talking about the same person. His God, our God. Whoops. His God, our God. His father, our father. All the same person. Okay. Here again, we have uh, the one coming down. Katabainon. The one coming down. It's got the article. Um, tied together with and from heaven. The one coming down from heaven. And the one giving life to the world. Uh, we saw Cosmon earlier when we were reading. That was accusative. Here's the omega with the Yoda subscript. This is dative to the world. Um, so the one coming down is the same one as the giving life. Okay, So we can see that that's talking about the same person. Now let's look at some other ones. We have the King James Version of Titus 2.13. says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. But I said that wrong. And the appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The King James separates the two. The appearing of our great God, or the, the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The way it's worded. And I would say that's unfortunate in that translation. It's not a not good. The new King James came along and fixed it. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Up here we have the great God. So we have an intervening uh, adjective. Yeah, we have the adjective. The, it, the article is before the adjective. And so this is, um, let's see. Well, actually, it's going with this, though. Well, anyway, so we have the great God. So we have article, we have the noun, and we have Kai, and we have Savior. None of these are names, proper names. And so that is referring to the same person. And so the New King James Version gets an A, and they get a D on the King James Version because that is not two people. It is one person. Looking for the blessed hope and great and <clears throat> glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is great. Jesus Christ is great God and Savior. Last week I talked about, you know, some, a couple of verses. One is Romans 9, 5, and the other one was Acts 20, 28. And I said it could be translated attributing deity to Jesus, and it could be not translated to not attribute deity to Jesus. And I said they could go either way, but there's a lot of ironclad ones. And these are some of the ironclad ones. The Jesus is directly called God. That's why I have no qualms with translating the others to show the deity of Christ because we find it in a lot of other places. And this is not exhaustive either. Um, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. This is a... The King James Version did it again. The whole verse, I just have the very last one. Here we got two thou, so we have the, uh, the article, we have a noun, we have chi, we have another noun. This follow, so this, this is what Granville Sharp was talking about. This is true to his rule. 
Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that obtained a precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. They, this King James Version separated them out. And that is not um, a good translation. This is talking about the same person. It should say, a precious faith with us through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One person, our God and Savior. He is, Jesus Christ is God and Savior. And we can see this borne out by looking just 11 verses down. In Second Peter chapter 1, 11, we have, a, this time we have Kuriu. This is Lord. And we have an article. We have Lord, and we have Kai, and... And we have the same word here, soteros, 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 soteros. It's exactly the same. And so we have the exact same um, format. As we have the, so we have the name of Jesus, Yesu, Christu. We have Savior. We have and. We have of us. We have God. Down here we have Lord. And we have the, the article, uh, the whole verse is so uh, for so an interest shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. OK, we know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Well, if this is talking about the same person down here and it is, he is Lord and Savior. Then this is also talking about the same person over here. He is God and Savior. OK, so this is uh, showing the solid uh, foundation we have in Understanding the deity of Christ. Okay. Oh, that was the last one. Okay. Um, any questions on that? And then there's other places where Jesus called himself God. I mean, we're not even going into word studies. All of our insights are based on grammatical insights, not word studies. But like when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he crossed the lake and they had that, well, his disciples started and, um, they got caught up in the storm and then Jesus came walking out to them. And in Greek, when they, they were afraid, they thought they saw a spirit. And he said, um, in all four Gospels, this is related. He said, um, stop being afraid. It's We talked about that. Or let's see, no. We haven't looked at that yet. That's in the future. <laughs> That's in a future insight. But anyway, stop being afraid. I am. Now, usually the translators say, it's me. Don't be afraid or something, you know, something of that nature. It is I. Do not be afraid. But he said, ego me. I am. And so do not be afraid or stop being afraid. I am. And that's a good word for all of us. If we're going through something and we're a little anxious about it, have some anxiety, don't be afraid. I am. Jesus is still the I am. And we can rely on his faithfulness. And uh, he's faithful and true. Uh, but anyway, there's lots of, and that's just one of the places. There's a number of places where Jesus referred to himself as being God. And Jesus is called God when the resurrected Christ stood before Thomas, who said, unless I put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And he said, okay, come here. And uh, you can put your hand in here, finger in here, and put your hand in here. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him at all. He accepted that. In fact, he blessed it. He said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So there's lots of places where Jesus is called directly God, directly called God. All right, let's see. What direction can we go this time? Let's go Hebrew, but read up. Okay, we'll start the opposite of what we did. Chi, theta, beta, zeta, 
upsilon, psi, nu, phi, omega, iota, gamma, eta, kappa, alpha, lambda, mu, delta, xi, omicron, rho, sigma, pi, epsilon, tau. You guys are doing real good with the alphabet um, and with the diphthongs, speaking of which. <laughs> we'll do it one more time. Alpha iota, I is in aisle, A is in weight or eight, Oi is in oil or foil, We is in sweet, Ow as in sauerkraut, you as in what? Pneumatic. <laughs> Pneumatic, that would work, yes. Which actually comes from the Greek word for wind or breath or spirit. Pneuma in Greek, yeah. But we don't we don't pronounce the P, but it's still got one on the front of it. In Greek you don't there are no silent letters, so and the last one? Ooh, goes in through. All right. Any questions from today? So what is probably the best Greek translation? <laughs> the one that you can understand. <laughs> the one that you can read regularly and obey. <laughs> that sounds like a cop-out answer, but it really depends. I have known people who, and we were going to talk about translations at some point, and we actually have five minutes left, and so this is as good a time as any unless you're really chewing on the bit to get out of here. Um, I know of one particular woman comes to mind, and she struggles with reading anything other than the New Living Translation. Now, to me, that is way too paraphrastic. It's too much of a paraphrase. I don't care for it. It's okay. You're not going to fall into uh, apostasy or something like that if you use it. But I like something a little bit more rigid than that. Uh, but that's the one she can understand, and that's actually the best one. It's kind of like saying, what's the best car? Well, if you have a family, it might be a minivan. If you have a farm, it might be a truck. <laughs> if you uh, are, uh, I don't know, young and single, maybe it's something a little sportier. I don't, you know, it just depends on what you need. Now, um, if if the New Living Translation, you read that, and this, this is too sophomoric for me. I need something a little sturdier than that. The next one in line might be the NIV. Specifically, if you could get an NIV that goes back to like 1982 or something, or 1987. I can't remember what year it is. Sometime there in the 80s. I like the older better than the newer. They started doing things like belittling genders and stuff, and I don't like that so well. <clears throat> but it's uh, closer to a translation than what the New Living Translation is, and it's, but it's, uh, it's not as paraphrastic as the New Living Translation. Uh, then there's some that are kind of in the middle, like the English Standard Version or um, the New King James, or um, there's some others. There's the, what is it, the Christian Study Bible, the Holman, Holman something Study Bible, something like that. Um, they might fit somewhere there in the middle. Um, those are good. They're translations. They um, are not necessarily word for word. The 
New King James is probably more literal than some of those others. But then my favorite for me is the New American Standard. Whenever I read a number of, I've been reading through the Bible since 1977, and I've read through a number of translations. And right after I took Greek in 80, 81, and 82, I uh, went through, deliberately went through a bunch of translations. And when I read through the New American Standard, I thought, aha, this is it. Because I can, as I'm looking at the page of the New American Standard, I can see the Greek underneath it. I can see, ah, they're doing this to try to indicate this particular thing, like this imperfect tense, or they're trying to... um, they're trying to replicate the Greek text behind it. pretty, And so I've, I settled onto that one. However, because of that, it is also one of the, probably one of the more difficult translations to understand too. Now you, sometimes I'll be reading, especially if I'm tired, I'll read it and I go, what? <laughs> and so I can go back and if, and if necessary, I'd go back and read like an NIV or something. Uh, now, this is also painting with a broad brush because there are times that the New King James has renderings that are more literal than the New American Standard. And usually when that's true, the New American Standard will put a footnote in it in the margin and say, this is what it literally says. And I go, why didn't you do that to start with? You know, I would <laughs> like to have it there. Um, so it really depends. Every translation has strengths. Every translation has weaknesses. So. The New American, they try very hard to literally, faithfully render it in such a way to reflect the Greek text underneath it. What's, that's the strength. What's the weakness? They do that to the point that sometimes it's difficult to understand. Um, you take, um, like the NIV, uh, the strength is that it's more readable. But to be more readable, they put in words that may not necessarily be in the Greek behind it. And, however, having said that, there are times that the NIV will actually take a, a word and stick it in because it's indicating a type of action that is contained in the verb tense. It's contained in the verb tense. And so they will the word they add, well, that, there's no, there may not be a Greek representation of it by word, but certainly the, reputation, the representation of it is in the tense used in the verb itself. And so... Um, you know, so if you look at you're looking at the NIV and you say it's not literal enough for me, well, but they are still giving you some benefit. This is why I say read lots of different translations because then you get to see what the benefits are of them, and then uh, the uh, drawbacks are, like I say, they all have drawbacks, they all have weaknesses, they all have strengths. Um, I think it's good to read a lot of different ones. I try to do that on a regular, but still to this day, what's my go-to Bible? The new the the New American Standard Bible is my go-to Bible, but. I try to make sure this this year I'm reading a different one. So um, it's just good to do. I, I practice what I preach. I, I do the same thing. And the, uh, the reason is just to get a better understanding. One time I read a British translation of the New Testament, and it was, I know it's English, but it was different. <laughs> but it was still enlightening to be different, you know. And so there's benefit to it. Um, what's the best of all? What is the best Bible to read? It's the Greek and Hebrew Aramaic text. <laughs> and I have one of those. In fact, I just showed it to John a couple of days ago or a week ago or something. And it's, um, um, it's got the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the 269 verses in Aramaic in the Old Testament. It's, it's in Aramaic. And then New Testament's all Greek. That's, that's the best one. In fact, I have a note in my Bible that says, this is the word of God. Everything else is just a translation or version. <laughs> this is the word of God. 
So anyway, that's that's my take on translations. I know that, you know, it's funny that you should ask because just last night I went out to look at something on YouTube and they, they give you a, a bunch of things that they think you might be interested in. And two out of this whole big list was somebody talking about which is the best translation. But, you know, really the best translation is the one that you can read daily, understand, and obey. Those, you know, that's the most important thing. And then, then what are you going to do with it? Just like, or do you need a truck or do you need a minivan? What is it you need? What are you going to do with it? Well, uh, if you're going to be doing word studies, then you certainly want the New American Standard over the New Living Translation. But if you, like this one woman that, I'm, that I was talking about, if you have trouble reading and understanding, then you better get the uh, New Living Translation because you'll probably just get lost too often in a New American Standard. So, it uh, really depends on the person. Those are all okay. Those don't do the message. <laughs> uh, I can show you things in the message, and I just go. <sighs> um, what's that? Yeah, and sometimes they can be intriguing. Yeah, but sometimes it just makes no sense at all. I mean. I have a number of go-to verses for the, the message. Uh, what, Psalm 1 is one of them. Blessed is a man that walketh not in a castle. Sorry, I'm memorizing King James. So <laughs> I have a lot of memorized King James. Blessed is a man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, and sitteth in the seat that's scornful, but his light is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And the message has something like, uh, how, how um, blessed you are. No, I'm not blessed. What is it? How how God must love you because you don't go to Loudmouth Saloon or, or no, Loudmouth College and, and uh, Sin Saloon. And I don't know. It didn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> I thought somebody's got to explain this to me. The translation makes sense. The paraphrase didn't make sense. And there's a number of other places. There's some things that even some new age type stuff, it could be mistaken. I don't think that was Peterson's goal to introduce some new age stuff, but he, the way he phrased some things could introduce the idea of some new age concepts. I, I just say to stay away from it. Um, the what? The bloated toad version? It was in the message? Okay. Yeah. So anyway, oh yeah, no, I haven't read the Passion Translation. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but. Um, um not really. I um, which one do I read? I've had mine for a lot of years. <laughs> it's the '77 translation. Um, I have read a little bit in the new one. I know that they removed some of the archaic languages in the in the old '77 version. When you're praying, they'll put in the King James, thee or thou, and speaking to God, they they put that in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they, they took that out in the later version. And so um, it's probably better to get the later version. However, the one I have is the old one, and that's got it in it. But that's okay. It doesn't stumble me. 
Yep. Well, if I'm reading it out loud, like we got the men's meeting up here, and I'm going to read my new American out loud, I don't. I just say you <laughs> instead of thou or whatever. I, I just I just fix it. I got a translation interface, and it just from the eyes to the mouth it switches. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? It's a good question, and we we're going to talk more about it. We will still talk about some translations too later on, especially on the last, the ninth week. We'll be looking at tools and apps and that sort of thing. Um, another advantage to some of these, like the New American Standard, like over the New King James and such, is that they take advantage of some of the um, the more recent discoveries of papyri and manuscripts and stuff like that. Yep, yeah, they take take advantage of that. So, yep. Yeah. They do, and they are mistaken. And just about everything that they say, it would be pretty easy to unravel uh, for that. (laughs) You know, that's funny because Augustine said something like that. Whenever Jerome was going to translate, they were were contemporaries. And, And when Jerome was going to translate the Latin Vulgate, he says, why do we need that? If the Septuagint was good enough for the apostles, it ought to be good enough for us. Of course, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, done between 300 and 100. BC. So, anyways, yeah, but that they, I mean, when you, when you have a Septuagint and you look at quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, you look at it and say, yes, they are quoting this. <laughs> They're not, it's not a fresh translation from, from Hebrew into Greek. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's something like that, yes. Um, He has stepped out, I think, into dangerous... Well, he's in dangerous waters on a lot of levels, but (laughs) uh, that is... uh, I don't have it. In, well, let's see. I got it on my phone. I could. I'd have to look it up to see what what it said. But I've looked at what he says. I've read his argument. Uh, this has been months ago, so I don't have it. It's not right off the top of my head. But what he said is not correct. It's uh, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. That's that is the way it's been translated. That's the way it should be translated. He is uh, intermixing. Latin and Italian to make it say something different. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's his point. Yeah. 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 Yes, that's really the most important thing. What did Jesus say? Yeah. And really, that's the. Uh, we won't go into. Um, textual criticism too much 
I don't know if it'll come up in some future lesson, but I don't think it does. But just what are they trying to do? They're trying to come back to what did the original author say? Just like some of the things that you were talking about in the King James Version. The King James only us get all up in arms about some things. Um, the King James only us. They, one of the things they despise about the new King James Version is that it has alternate translations in the margin. And they just, that is what's wrong with this. That he, you know, when we're reading the King James Version, this is what it's supposed to say. But that's not the case. The 1611 version of the, of the King James Version, when it first came out, they included alternate translation notes in the margin. And over the course of time, those were removed, but they were originally there. And so th- that's a problem. <laughs> And uh, and there's just a lot of other things too. The, uh, the we have an embarrassing somebody put it that way. It's not my word. That's somebody else's word. An embarrassing supply of manuscripts for the New Testament. When you look at any other writing of antiquity, and we have around six thousand Greek manuscripts, nobody's got that except the New Testament. And then when you take in the fact that we have whatever, twenty around 20,000 early translations as well. We have lots of witnesses as to what was written. Um, and so textual criticism, but how did they make, they didn't go down to the printing press. They, they didn't print it off in Word. You know, everything was handwritten and people make mistakes. But if we took, you know, filled this room up with people and had everybody copy First John, something short, First John, or even just second or third John, something really short. And we gathered all the papers and maybe passed them out so people had different ones. And we say, copy this. And then, then we gather all those papers. Let's say we had 100, so let's say 200. Let's work with round numbers. Let's say we had 200 people in here. I don't think we'd have a whole 200. <laughs> but if we gathered all those together, we could look at those and say, okay, this one and this one have the same mistake. This is probably a copy of one of these, you know. But none of these other... Okay, so then we'd have 400 copies. If we had 200 people, and each one did twice, you copied it once out of the Bible, then copied somebody else's once. So we have 400 copies. Bring all those back together again. You can put them in families. You can know which ones are related and which ones aren't. And you say, well, this, here's this error, and it occurs in a couple of manuscripts, but we got um, 398 that don't have that error, but they have other errors. It's real easy to go back through and figure out what did the original say, and that's and that's all they're doing in textual. Now there's something called higher criticism in there, and don't go there. <laughs> that's that's just bad. That's that's where you get into things like, well, Genesis written wasn't written by Moses. It was written by four guys, and one guy used the word Jehovah, or which he didn't because it's not Jehovah, it's Yahweh. But um, there's no J. J is a we talked about that. I think that's a recent addition to the alphabet. <clears throat> this one was used Elohim, and they, they have different people that they they say actually. That's what they call it. It's farther removed. The reason it's called higher criticism is not because it's better. It's because it's farther removed from the re- reality, <laughs> farther farther removed from the evidence. But the uh, textual criticism is looking at it and saying, what is the, uh, um, what was it that was originally written by Matthew? Take for instance. It's 10, 12 after. I can stop if you want me to. I can keep talking if you want me to. It's really whatever you guys want to do. Um, take, for instance, the uh, curses in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you do whitewashed tombs of the prophets. Uh, you're, no, you're like whitewashed tombs. 
uh, bright and shiny on the outside and full of dead men's bones and corruption on the inside and all this stuff. And in Matthew, Matthew originally wrote seven, and that makes perfect sense. He's writing to the Jews, and he's got all these other things of sevens or, or multiples of sevens. We see this over again in Matthew, and it looks like Matthew wrote seven. However, Mark, same context, same time period, talking to the same people, he only mentions one, and it's not the ones that Matthew mentioned. And so uh, yet during the time that, uh, see, this is a whole history lesson thing. Uh, the Mark Western Empire, Mark sorry? Maybe. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that, you know. Uh, I don't know if I'm real sure on that to say yes or no. Um, but anyway, uh, once upon a time, the Western Empire went with Latin, and, but the Eastern Empire, the Greek Orthodox, continued to use Greek. Well, during that time, they had their liturgy and they harmonized things a little bit. And so they added Marks into Matthew. So in the King James Version, New King James Version, there's eight of them. Is it wrong? That's not wrong because Jesus said it. Mark tells us that. You know, it's scripture. There's, it's not but, but is it what Matthew said? Well, no, it's not what Matthew said. And there's a, a number of things like that where we can say Matthew had seven. We can go back to the manuscripts and look at it. Matthew had seven. Mark had one, but it was a different one. But it doesn't hurt for it to be there. So if you're reading the New King James Version, it's okay. Jesus did indeed say that <laughs> uh, in Mark. The Texas Receptus has all eight, and a lot of the Byzantine. The Byzantine texts and the uh, Texas Receptus that the King James and New King James are based on, uh, they have all eight. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because it's not in the older ones. And then when you have some of these um, things like that, you won't find it at all in the older ones, um, and you won't find it in the teachings of the early I say early Christians they call them the church fathers but when they quoted it if they're quoting from Matthew they wouldn't have quoted the one from Mark unless they're bringing things together you know um, and then you'll have manuscripts that are kind of in between in time wise between the two and they'll have Mark's notations in the margin that says this is not authentic to the rest of the to, to, the, uh, to most of the manuscripts um, and, and then after that, once it gets put in, though, because scribes were paid to make copies of something, and if something was written in the margin, if they thought it went inside, there's actually a comical one that happened. There was a guy writing Corinthians, and a scribe had put in the margin, uh, this is the way it is in many of the ancient texts. And in one of the texts, uh, one of the manuscripts, they took that out of the margin and stuck it in the text. So Paul is t talking to the Corinthians and said, and it's this way, this way in many of the ancient texts. Well, that's not <laughs> that wasn't what Paul wrote, but it got put in there. So these things, we know these things happen because we see these things when we look at the manuscript evidence. But another example would be the ending of Mark. And I found out just recently that there's even, I knew that there was the... Manuscripts that have Mark ending at verse 8 or 9. I can't remember, 8 or 9. Usually if you have like an NIV, ESV, New American Standard, something like that, it'll, it'll say, you know, that this, you know, 
that's where it ends. But they'll have the rest of it in there. Well, then there's the long ending, and then there's a short ending, and then I recently read of yet another ending, but it's more obscure, so I'm not really familiar with that. And some manuscripts, you have both the long ending and the short ending together uh, in one manuscript. And their argument for, like, the King James-only people, they'll say, well, that's only two manuscripts that don't have that ending. And yet we have all this other abundant manuscript, all these other manuscripts that do. And that makes it sound like, well, those two earlier manuscripts are wrong. But there's what what we really need is, uh, what was his name? Um, can't think of his name. Now you know the rest of the story. Paul Harvey, yeah, Paul Harvey, thank you. What we really need is Paul Harvey in this, because when you start looking at the evidence for the endings of Mark, um, yes, there's only, whether it's two or three, there's not very many manuscripts that end, you know, at that one verse early. And then what they don't tell you is that early translations into into three, at least three other languages, one was Syriac, one was um, Latin, and the other one was, I don't think it was Coptic, I think it was... Armenian or something like that. But early, early, early translations, they don't have it either. And then uh, you come along to the earliest of the early church fathers or the early Christians. I don't like calling them fathers because Jesus said don't do that. So I don't like to do that. But you talk about the earliest Christians. When, as they quote the scriptures, they were not aware of these other endings, the long ending or the short ending, either one. And then you come to the time of Jerome, which was who we mentioned earlier. He was 400 A.D., Jerome said he was familiar with the endings. He said it is these longer endings are not to be found in the majority of the Greek texts. So at 400, the majority text at 400 A.D., the majority text was to not have those. And so, um, and then when it does show up in the earliest manuscripts, that does where it does show up, it has these same markings in the margin to indicate. This is, seems to be spurious. It seems to be it's something that was added later. It doesn't seem to be a part of the original. And the scribes made note of that. But they don't tell you any. The King James only people don't tell you that sort of thing. But then you have the internal evidence as well. So you have all these things, but they don't tell you about that. Um, and at some point they became somewhat accepted, but then sometimes it's long ending, sometimes it's short. And the, the whole thing, the whole problem is that the Bible as a whole like 98% of it, is rock solid. Um, and so when you have something that, where you have these mar- notes in the margin and you have these statements that, well, the majority of the manuscripts don't have this, and you have all these things, it, it just raises your red flag. You go, what happened here? Um, but the, for the most part, like I say, like 98 or more percent of the New Testament is just rock solid. I know a guy who he's, he's got an organization. He photographs um, high resolution digital photographs. And now they're using multi uh, spectral imaging to uh, take pictures of every hand printed or hand written page of the New Testament. So they travel around the world and, and do these. And in the process, he's uncovered about a hundred new manuscripts that we didn't know existed. And he said sometimes he'll sit on an airplane, you know, you sit next to somebody, and they say, what do you do? And he says, I study ancient New Testament manuscripts. And they say, well, that probably gives you a different story about Jesus, doesn't it? And he says, no, it's the same story. 
it's the same thing. You say, well, here's this manuscript. It looks like it might be a first century uh, um, manuscript of this is under contention now. This may not be first century, but there are some who are really pushing that it's first century uh, copy of Mark. And uh, how do we know that it's Mark? It's because it says the same thing. <laughs> That's how you know it's the same thing is because it says the same thing. Or you take, uh, you know, the uh, some of the other manuscripts, the early manuscripts. So how do you know that this is a fragment from John? It says the same thing. We know exactly what verse it is because it says if it says something different, we wouldn't know what it was. But it says the same thing. Um, so anyway, then lastly, going back to Mark 16, is... Um, But I, want, but I do want you to know, going back again, that most there's only a few areas in the New Testament that are like that. The, the preponderance of the New Testament is rock solid. Yes, there's spelling errors. Somebody, some people like Bart, Bart Ehrman will tell you about all the 400,000 errors or differences or whatever. Well, you have to understand how he's getting his count. It's very inflated the way he's doing it. But if you check every single spelling error or any time somebody was dyslexic and turned a word around or maybe two words around or something like that, and he's counting all these things as errors and he comes up with this number of 400,000 or something, those are pretty easy spot. We can tell whether it's a spelling error. We can tell if it's something dyslexic. One scribe even had, he was copying a text that had three columns on a page and he was copying Luke, and he's doing the genealogy in Luke chapter, what is that, three or four, Mary's genealogy in Luke. And, and you know, he's going through, but instead of going through the columns, he actually went all the way across the page. And so he's got everybody with the wrong father, was begotten by the wrong person, and even God was begotten by somebody. And then it finally ends up with somebody from out of the middle of the whole thing. It's just, it's just completely, how do they know what happened? Well, if you just take those and separate them out where they're supposed to be, you find, you find out, okay, these were rows in three columns of text. I mean, you can figure out all these mistakes out. And, and there's only one manuscript that's like that anyway, so we know that's not the way it was originally written, you know. Um, so... The text of the New Testament is rock solid, uh, but there are a few. And the reason that's why I say 98 plus percent is because we have things like the ending of Mark. The other one is the 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 story in in John chapter eight about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus. In one test, in one text, one manuscript, that story is put after the resurrection. In another manuscript, it's put in Luke not in John at all. And it's moved around in places. That just throws up all kinds of red flags because the New Testament is so rock solid. We see the same thing all the time. And then when you come up with something, how come this is different? Well, it raises red flags because everything else is rock solid. And I'm not saying that they didn't bring the woman to Jesus and that he didn't write in the dirt or anything. I think most everybody believes that, yes, that really happened, but it wasn't a part of what John wrote. (laughs) But it was inserted there later. But uh, it wasn't authentic to what John wrote. And I don't have anything against the passage. I'm not saying it's wrong or that it shouldn't be there. It's just, it's, but it probably is not what John wrote. So you have that one. Uh, And then there's some smaller ones. Those between Mark and John, that would be the, that would be the bulk of the 1.8% that I'm talking about uh, that's not rock solid. Uh, there's some other things. For instance, in John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, there's this statement about in the King James, New King James, about we have these three 
and the Father, the Son, the Spirit. These are three. These are one, you know. And But that doesn't show up in any Greek manuscripts till you get to after the 10th century. And I think it's closer to the 14th century before you find it in any Greek manuscript at all. And Erasmus, who put together the text that was used by the King James translators, um, the, the, the text that became known as Textus Receptus, he didn't have it in there and he caught all kinds of flack for it because they had it in the Vulgate. It was added in the Vulgate. And he said, I haven't seen it in any Greek manuscripts. If I saw it in a Greek manuscript, I'd put it in there. Somebody manufactured one, put it in there and gave it to him. And so he had to, he said, if I ever saw it in a Greek manuscript, I'd put it in. So he did. But he put a nasty footnote on it and said, this is not authentic. I think that this was deliberately done to get me to put this in here because it's not in any older Greek manuscripts, a fairly recent Greek manuscript that he, uh, but see, all those notes have been removed over time too, so we don't see that anymore. But it, we have these little one-offs like that, and the one I was talking about in between the, the one from Mark that got added over to Matthew. We have this harmonization thing that they took, that the um, Greek Orthodox Church harmonized some things. One of the things that helps prove what I'm saying is if you look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation was not used in the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox Church. And so when you're looking at the footnotes, and if you get a New King James Version, it has, uh, they have like NU, which means the Nestle Elan uh, uh, UBS text, and then they have M, which would be the majority text. When you're reading through the book of Revelation, like I say, the Greek Orthodox scribes didn't touch it because they never used it for any of their liturgy. And it should be pointed out that a lot of the manuscripts we have with Scripture are from liturgy notes. So that's another one. Um, but when you're looking through your King, New King James in the references, uh, marginal references, you'll find out that oftentimes the King James, New King James, based off the Texas Receptus, is on shaky ground. That almost always both the oldest, so let's just narrow it down that way, the NU, the Nestle Aland UBS text, uh, which usually represents older texts, you'll find that it says not in the, or that that's either not there or that there's something else there or it was changed. And you'll find that that's also with a majority text. And so you have the oldest manuscripts and the majority of manuscripts all disagree with the way we have it. <laughs> but in fact, towards the end of the book of Revelation, when Erasmus put his text together, I know this is a lot of stuff. Uh, when Merasmus put his text together, he didn't. The text that he had for the Book of Revelation didn't have the end of it, and so he had to go back to the Latin Vulgate, translate it back into Greek. And so, the Textus Receptus Greek text at the end of the Book of Revelation is entirely different from all the other manuscripts. It's got words that don't appear anywhere else. It's only in that text because he he didn't have it. He had to just translate it back to complete his Greek New Testament. That exists in that text to this day. Um, so. Anyway, that's another proof of this, um, this this whole idea of the Greek Orthodox Church harmonizing things as they, or making things more specific, but you know, changing it. But the the text of the New Testament, we we certainly aren't missing anything. We have a few extra things <laughs> from here, where here and there that we've got maybe put in over time. So I was, I was talking about the ending of Mark. And we talked about the ancient translations. We talked about the marks in the margin. We talked about the fact that the early Christians did not know of it. And when they did, when Jerome talked about it, he said the majority of the Greek texts don't have these additional endings. Okay, but if you look at it, and then you look at things like <clears throat> I taught a few weeks ago on Sunday morning about what happened on resurrection morning, the sequence of events, 
that the women went, Mary Magdalene among them went. When she saw that the stone was rolled away, she went back to get Peter and John. The other women stayed and saw Jesus. When you're reading the ending in Mark, it says he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Well, no, actually he appeared to Mary Magdalene after, you know, Peter and John and Mary Magdalene had come back to the tomb after the other women had left. So that statement is incorrect. Uh, Mark, I'm not trying to put this guy down. He was probably a brother in the Lord, the scribe that he just didn't like the ending being so abrupt. And so he, he, he tried to smooth things out and he brought some sources together. And so he said these things, but it's, some of us just unfortunate. He says, uh, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them. That's in Mark 16 and the long ending, the long ending. He appeared in a different form. No, Jesus didn't appear in a different form to anybody. He, his resurrected body was his resurrected body. It was the same body. It wasn't something manufactured or whatever. Luke is the one who gives the detail on it. Luke's text is undisputed. And Luke says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were veiled. They were kept from recognizing him. Um, so he didn't appear in another form. And then the same story, the guys, you know, on the road to Emmaus, after their eyes were unveiled and they did recognize Jesus, they ran back to Jerusalem. In Mark 16, in the long ending, it says, and when they got there, they told the disciples, but they didn't believe them either, that Jesus had risen from the dead. If you read Luke, in the undisputed text, in the text that Luke actually wrote, in the, in the, in the more complete story of the whole thing, they came back to Jerusalem. When they got there, the disciples were saying, the Lord has risen and he appeared to Peter. Then they shared their story about being on the road to Emmaus and Jesus revealing the scripture to them. So it, it, it's not like the guy in Mark says, you know, and there's other things like all the snake handling that's in that long ending, you know, and there's nothing else like it anywhere else in the scriptures. Just it just doesn't match. But we have these blatant errors, and that's at least three of them. Jesus didn't appear in another form. The, they did, the disciples did believe them when they told them about the trip to Emmaus because they already knew he was risen, and they were saying that he was already risen, and they appeared to Peter. And the fact that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. So those are all mistakes. Uh, and I will tell you, the Bible does not have contradictions. The Bible does not have mistakes. If somebody came if somebody came to me, nobody did, but if they came to me and said, Bruce, you taught on this and you said that, you know, he appeared to these other women and then Mary Magdalene came back later and so he didn't appear, but it says this in Mark. That's my answer. Well, that wasn't originally what Mark wrote. Uh, this was added by a later date by a scribe who wanted to just tie things up. Um, you know, and I think he pulled from other things. I think he pulled from the book of Acts. He says they'll handle snakes. Well, Actually, I think he was just picking from Acts when Paul was throwing the firewood on and there was a snake in the firewood and attached itself to him and it didn't hurt him. And then so I think he just, I think he just brought some things together and, and uh, it's just unfortunate that he did not do his homework <laughs> when, when he did. So anyway, those are the types of things that make me go to 98.2. But I'm, what I am saying is that what we have, what has God told us, it's rock solid and it's all there. Now we have these other little things like uh, the, Matthew, the, the, uh, the John 8, woman caught in adultery. It's okay, but it wasn't what John originally wrote. So we have extra. The endings, a lot of Bibles have both the long and the short ending of Mark. And so, you know, those add up to a lot of verses. That's, these are the things that mostly make this. Uh, so we have some extra, but we, we definitely have what God has said. And God's word that he, what he did inspire, it is all correct and it is inerrant. There is no, there are no contradictions. 
And if it looks like there's a contradiction, it's because we're not looking at it rightly. And if we look into it, study into it, we will find that what God said was exactly right. So, and I better quit. We, <laughs> we're over a half hour over, but thank you for your patience and listen to an old man ramble on. <laughs>